Welcome to Fight for Your Rights. In today's episode, we will be discussing some of the fundamental rights around the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. Specifically, we'll be addressing some of the pro-gun and pro-gun control arguments with the goal of changing or strengthening your stance. Alright, welcome to the second episode. So, we're going to be discussing a lot of information around the gun debate, which is going to be a pretty contentious debate on both sides. And a lot stems from what degree we need to restrict guns. Now, before we even discuss some of the current day effects guns have, we need to determine what rights specifically the Second Amendment grants us. So, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, very short, but there is a lot to unpack here. So, first, a well-regulated militia. Now, this is probably the most controversial part of the Second Amendment, because on one side you have people who will say that by well-regulated, um, it refers to government control or government regulation of the militia. And on the other side, they will say that well-regulated is referring to uniformism, organization, and kind of the ability of the militia to be capable um, in the event of an emergency. So first, let's break down well-regulated in the context of when it was created. Now, as Thomas Jefferson said, Quote, the Constitution of the United States asserts that all power is inherent in the people and that they may exercise it by themselves. That is their right and duty to be at all times armed. He later goes on to say a militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include, according to past and general usage of all of the states, all men capable of bearing arms. James Madison said a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the best and most natural defense of a free country. Richard Henry Lee, who was one of the founding fathers, stated a militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include, according to past and general usage of the states, all men capable of bearing arms. So it's pretty clear that the defining trait for a lot of these founding fathers in reference to the Second Amendment has to do with the fact that it's the people's capability to defend in the event of its necessity. So let me ask you, and I want you to answer this as legitimately as you can. Do you think these founding fathers, the same men who just fought a war over government control of citizens' rights, would have wanted government control over the people's militia or their weapons? Again, do you legitimately believe that's why they intended, that's what they intended within the establishment of the Second Amendment? And if you want to make the argument that you think the militia should be government regulated, that's fine, as long as you are capable of recognizing that according to the Second Amendment, that is an unconstitutional approach. But moving on to the next section, being necessary to the security of a free state. Okay, so again, here already we see support for the previous line of a well-regulated militia in the context of it being capable free men. Again, it would be pretty contradictory if by well-regulated they meant government-controlled, and then they would go on to sort of say that government control is necessary to the freedom of the people if that's what they were trying to say. But it would literally contradict itself if that were the case. The only way to pair the first two statements together is in the context that they support and build on each other. The first part makes it clear who the subject is, right? A well-capable, organized group of free citizens. And the next part, being necessary to the security of a free state, supports the idea that in order to keep the state free, you must have a capable militia. Now, there's some debate over what is meant by free state, and you can look at this in a couple different concepts. One is the idea that by free state, it means the ability of an individual to remain in a free state of their individual rights, as in the state of your own welfare, for example. But 
more likely it is referring to the collective country as a union being free as determined by the people. But regardless, all definitions of free state come down to the basic element of freedom achieved through the protection of this unalienable right. So we put the first two statements together and essentially we get something along the lines of a well-organized, capable militia made up of the people as necessary for preserving freedom within the country. Okay, so the next line, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So there's actually quite a lot to unpack here in this statement. First off, what right are they protecting? Now, commonly, people will look at this and say, oh, it's the right to have a gun. Well, actually, it provides two very distinct rights, the first being the right to keep arms. Now, that essentially allows it so that you may be in possession of a gun, right? That you have, um, that you might have a gun or that you can store your gun within your house and property. Well, the right to bear arms specifically grants you the right to use said guns in the event of self-defense. Similarly, the phrase take up arms can be related to the statement to bear arms, again, in the context that if you use them properly, it makes sense. So boiled down, essentially, you have the right to own a gun and use it if necessary. Now, the last part in regards to these rights not being infringed is a very interesting choice of language. Now, notice they just as easily could have ended up with um, or ended it with the people have the, the right to keep and bear arms period, but rather they went one step further and reinforced their message by saying these rights shall not be infringed. And the importance of this reinforced message sort of plays part to the structure of the Constitution, that the order of amendments was written in a very particular manner, as if to say that um, this is the Second Amendment because they viewed it as extreme importance in the preservation of freedom. It's not far off to assume the reason they placed the second is because it would dis is distinctly tied to the first. In other words, Failure of the First Amendment warrants the use of the Second Amendment. But the word infringe used in the context is very interesting. Now, the definitions of infringe mean to encroach or intrude upon the ways of, of an agreement or law. Now, that's interesting because a lot of people think that infringement is very straightforward or clear cut, whether we have the Second Amendment right protected or not. But it's almost designed in a way particularly to address partial intrusion of such amendment. In other words, the Founding Fathers intended by any degree for this right to not be violated. Now, that doesn't mean by infringement that it's automatically taking away all guns, but maybe they do it by degrees. Again, infringement can come in many varying degrees, and possibly we're seeing some of that playing out within today's society. Now, if we put all of this together, essentially, what we get is a well-organized capable militia made up of the people is necessary for preserving freedom within the country. This freedom is preserved by allowing individuals the right to both have and use arms if necessary. And this right must not be violated by any degree. And like I said earlier, it's a really short amendment, only about 27 words, which some could even argue was designed to be so concise as to be ever more clear in its protection of such a fundamental right. Um, but we've talked about what the Second Amendment is, what it means, why it's important, but we haven't really addressed why it ever became necessary in the first place. Now, one of the most talked about subjects pertaining to British takeover of colonial rights was their intent to take over gun rights and confiscate the colonist weapon. Now, we hear all the time about right violations, such as taxation without representation, quartering troops, which we see the effects of in the Third Amendment, unfair trials, which we see in the Sixth Amendment, and general uh, king executive lawmaking abilities, all of which were infamous grievances um, that we now see the effects of in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, but we really don't hear as much about gun violation rights or gun right violations. So to start things off, 
were the um, pretty paramount battles of Lexington and Concord. Now, leading up to these battles, the British were in a pretty uncomfortable spot. Considering all they have been doing up to that point was stripping the colonists of their rights, they were pretty much left with no other option but to remove weapons from the colonists out of fear of revolt, which to some effect they had already been doing with unreasonable searches and seizures of firearms, especially among individuals of high political opposition, following countless arrests. But spoiler alert, the attempt to stop a revolt kind of backfired. On the night of April 18th, uh, 1775, hundreds of British troops marched from Boston to nearby Concord in order to seize an arms cache with the intent of disarming and destroying the colonists' weapons to suppress any resistance. Now, of course, the colonists' response to that was, well, you can go back home, which, of course, led to the infamous shot heard around the world, leading to the first revolutionary battle fought and also one of the first American uh, revolutionary victories won. Now, of course, hearing about all of this, King George III was quick to authorize British officials to force all the inhabitants of Boston to turn in their arms at one of the town halls for temporary, quote, temporary safekeeping. Now, of course, um, some of the people or of the people who did comply, troops seized their firearms never to return them, who could have guessed. Even throughout the events of the Revolutionary War, home-owned guns and ammunition came in extremely valuable. As gun shortages and ammo shortages were in such high demand, it almost ended the revolution before it began. In order to combat the growing crisis, the early Continental Congress was forced to actually turn to Europe to supply more weapon components to further distribute arms, and gun militia stores were quick to sell out, leaving many individuals empty-handed, left only with the weapons that they already had at home. Had it not been for the fact that so many colonists were armed prior to the war starting, there may not have been a revolutionary war in the first place. Now, if you were to ask any pro-gun individual these days the purpose of the Second Amendment, the answer is almost always to protect against a tyrannical government. And you can see how that assertion stems from precedent, which I don't think is incorrect. But I do think there's more to it than just that, because there are many forms of tyrannical government that are often undermined. For example, the first and most common belief of tyrannical government is fear of one's own government. And that was the case with the early colonists in British ruling that the government would be more powerful than the people it governed and would thus violate its citizens' rights because of its unchecked power. The question is, does the argument for a tyrannical government uh, grant the right to self-defense? Now, here is the general argument for the why the Second Amendment protects you from your own corrupted government. According to the Declaration of Independence, the only legitimate governments are those with the consent of the governed. When a government becomes the enemy and not the defender of human rights, the people can withdraw their consent and set up a new government. This was the case with British, with the British Empire and King George at the time. Now, this means any government not of the people, but that attempts to control the people contrary to their will, is an enemy to the state. Let me be clear. The entire purpose of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, etc., was all created out of revolution from the then government, only because many of their rights had been violated and they were tired of living under the tyranny of an uncontrolled governing body. So, circle back, a government not of the people is an enemy of the state. And furthermore, an enemy to our freedom, really. So, one may assume that the founding fathers at the time considered it of great importance for the people to be armed in the event they needed to fight back against a tyrannical government, or for better description, um, representing governments, as they did in times of the Revolutionary War. Now, Oftentimes, the rebuttal to this idea of fighting against a tyrannical government with our guns becomes that of 
Um, the time for revolution passed long ago, as well as the need for citizens to be armed in the event of a revolution. In other words, people will say that the need to fight back against a tyrannical government is the thing of the past. It's obsolete. Um, it sort of had its time and served a pr its purpose, but we've moved on from that. Now, while the revolution is a clear case against that assumption in times of the past, there also exists plenty of modern day examples of governments overtaking citizens' rights and especially the right to bear arms. Let me give you some examples. In 1929, the Soviet Union established gun control. And from 1929 to 1953, about 20 million dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. In 1911, Turkey established gun control. From 1915 to 1917, 1.5 million Armenians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Germany established gun control in 1938. And from 1939 to 1945, a total of 13 million Jews and others were unable to defend themselves and were rounded up and exterminated. China established gun control in 1935. From 1948 to 1952, 20 million political dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Guatemala established gun control in 1964. From 1964 to 1981, 100,000 Mayan Indians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Uganda established gun control in 1970. From 1971 to 1979, 300,000 Christians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Cambodia established gun control in 1956. From 1975 to 1977, one million educated, quote, educated people unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Approximately 56 million defenseless people around the world were exterminated in the 20th century because of gun control. I think you get the point. Yes, having guns to fight back against a tyrannical government or a government that no longer represents the people's will is still needed even today. And to argue that the need to defend oneself against a tyrannical government is rare or non-existent or obsolete would be to dismiss the countless lives who have been lost and who are still suffering from the rule of governments who strip them of their right to defense. This has been the case historically and even now in times of present, it is still very much needed. But the Second Amendment, as many people often think, isn't just about defending against your own government. Right? You might think of government officials in uniforms coming to arrest you um, in your home, sort of like the British, for example, but it isn't always that clear. And this sort of brings us to another needed characteristic for bearing arms against tyrannical governments, which is the importance of self-defense. And what do I mean by self-defense? And Yes, well, the last example I just gave applies to self-defense. I'm talking about self-defense more in the context of, say, criminals or other law-breaking individuals. And you're probably thinking how tyrannical governments and crime are really related. Well, the connection that a lot of people don't often relate is how dependent crime is on governing policies. If the government or even state governments and representatives, for that matter, enact policies that fail to address and protect against crime, leading to more individuals being robbed, harmed, assaulted, etc., then the government has effectively failed in that aspect. It is pretty bipartisan, no matter where you stand, liberal or even libertarian, that the one job the government has, for sure, is to defend against threats, foreign and domestic. By failing to protect American citizens from domestic crime, the government is no longer representing the people's will, and no longer fulfilling its primary duty to protect the general welfare. So, to sum up the point that I'm essentially making, sometimes the right to bear arms is critical when the government fails, right? You, you may not be fighting a government of tyranny necessarily, but you are fighting a government that allows tyranny. And the line is 
cross, especially when politicians and leaders of authority choose to allow dereliction of duty, or essentially when they allow criminals to run the streets, thus leading to a tyranny of crime. Because crime is tyranny, and a serious form of tyranny. Think about it. What are the elements of tyranny? If I asked you right now to define tyranny, what would you say? We might say things ranging from oppression to dictatorships to rules for thee but not for me type structures. Now, the question is, do we see those things within crime? Oppression? I think we see plenty of that in terms of the amount of power rule breakers have to not only threaten your way of life but strip you of basic rights, such as the right to property or life for that matter. How about dictatorship or totalitarianism? How could we possibly see that in crime? Now, the truth is that no matter what we do, there will always be some populace out there who favors the system of anarchy. These are the rule breakers. What's dangerous about this is without laws, without respect for each other's rights, everything breaks down. Society cannot function. The government becomes obsolete and civility as we know it is exterminated. It's really the battle between laws versus lawlessness. And different people are on different sides of that war. And some may be in the middle. And at the forefront, are the officials making the rules. These are our elected representatives. When we see individuals in power who allow lawlessness, are they often met with immediate removal or revocement of legislative policy-related powers? Sometimes they are, but not always. And the question is, which side of the war do you want to be on? And how are you going to defend yourself when the side of lawlessness wins over? That's the real question. And of course, rules for thee, not for me, are pretty straightforward. Of course, those who do not abide by laws will continue to refuse abiding by laws. And that is a key point we'll get into later about modern gun use, and those who do abide by the laws are going to continue doing so. And again, if you are on the side of abiding to laws, how are you going to defend yourself against those who are not? Plain and simple. Government that allows for the tyranny of crime is a crime committed by the tyranny of government. And that is the key thing to understand about our need to bear arms. So that's another example of why we have the Second Amendment. But the Second Amendment also gives us the right to defend against other tyrannical governments. And this one probably gets the least amount of recognition, even though it is tremendously important. The mistake with saying the Second Amendment only protects us from our government is that the Second Amendment really protects us from any tyrannical governments, especially foreign governments. Now, think about this. If there are two countries you want to invade, both have militaries, but one has a constitution that allows for individual firearm ownership, which are you going to attack? A military is one thing. But a country made up of people with the power to shoot back is an entirely different superpower. And we need to not go that far back in history to look at examples of how guns have protected the people against other governments. Now, the most, most well-known example that comes to mind, especially in regards to America, is World War II, in which one of the reasons the Japanese feared invading the homeland of America was because of the amount of gun ownership that would have posed a risk to full-out invasion within that area. And... A lot of people will try to disqualify this, mainly because they would hate to admit that guns do, in fact, protect individuals, um, even if it's just simply the knowledge of gun ownership alone that deters. But in any event, don't take my word for it. Quote, you cannot invade the mainland United States. There would be a rifle behind every blade of grass. That was said by Isoroku Yamamoto, who at the time was a Japanese Marshal Admiral of the Imperial Japanese Navy and the Commander-in-Chief of the Combined Fleet during World War II. Don't think that's good enough. Let's go even more modern. The war in Ukraine. Perfect example of the people's ability to assume protective powers over not only their own country, but just simply their home and families. And you can literally look up videos, given our current day and age, of Ukrainians fighting and defending themselves in the streets with their personal weapons. What's even more ironic about that fact is in response to the Ukrainian war, the U.S. has actually sent billions of dollars in weapons over 
um, and over in order to help out resistance. So contrary to what some in the U.S. government may tell you about guns, clearly their actions speak louder to the impact guns can have for providing defense. So while the military and general government should always be first in defending its citizens, especially against foreign threats, the right to bear arms is the backup if the former fails. And if you are one who believes that the government and military is all that is necessary to defend you against life-threatening or freedom-threatening enemies, then go back and simply review one of the many countless examples of citizens being exterminated by either their own or other governments that fail to represent the people's will. Okay, so we're going to get into modern gun usage very soon here, but there's just a couple more things that I want to touch on before we move forward, especially in regards to the claims that have been going around about the Second Amendment uh, and earlier usage in general. Now, firstly is the assumption that weapons such as cannons could not have been used by citizens during the Revolutionary War. Now, the goal of individuals who perpetrate this claim is to relate cannons, given their immense power and damage capability, to other quote-unquote high-power modern-day guns, such as the AR-15 rifle. Now, the issue with the claim that cannons cannot be used is that it's verifiably false for two big reasons. Now, the first is we know that this isn't true because historical precedent exists explicitly allowing for the usage of cannons by James Madison between documented letters with privateers. And if you don't believe me, you can look it up online in one of the hundreds of letters that exist. And this should be one of those things that it's so obvious, so verifiably obvious, people should be able to immediately call it out, which astounds me given how often we still hear these claims going around. And especially when you take into account these people are ignoring documents protecting a Second Amendment, right, written by the same man who wrote the Second Amendment. Plain and simple, that alone should be enough. But no. Reason two, along with historical precedent proof, we have legislative proof. No gun restrictions had existed only until the National Firearms Act of 1934, which required the, the registration of certain firearms, imposed taxes on the sale of manufacturer of firearms, and restricted the sale and ownership of high-risk weapons, such as machine guns. Now, this was the first legislative gun control to ever exist in America. And if no gun restrictions had existed up until this 1934 legislation, then no restrictions could have existed that outlawed the use of cannonry. Now, along with claims like this one, another one that is less common, but you still hear every now and then, is the comparison between older guns versus modern guns. Now, the basic core of this argument is that muskets, which were predominantly used in the Revolutionary War, although there were certainly uh, other weapons, other weapon variations that were used, um, the, the musket was one of the most common weapons. And people will often try and claim that they were far less dangerous than modern weapons, such as, say, the AR-15. Now, the issue with this claim is that the Second Amendment does not grant the right to own a musket. It grants the right to own self-defense through the bearing and usage of arms or even specifically the ability to own a gun. The idea that this right is only granted to people with the ability to use certain kinds of weapons or weapons that are deemed more practical than others, which is a very vague description, is just not true. The Second Amendment was designed to protect citizens' equal power to fight back against those who seek to violate their liberty, whether it's bad government or just bad citizens. And by restricting citizens from using certain weapons that are better for defending yourself against others means that you are just allowing criminals to have that much more of an advantage over you. So, no, the Founding Fathers did not write the Second Amendment with the intent of restricting weapons to, say, muskets. And also, to assume that the Founding Fathers 
would not have predicted the advancement of weaponry goes contrary to the thousands of years of weaponry evolution that existed prior to their time. There's a reason the Second Amendment doesn't say the right to own muskets or a pistol, but to own and bear arms, because it's talking about self-defense. Okay, so I wanted to get the historical and constitution elements out of this discussion first. The reason I want to be clear on these things is because nowadays too often you have people trying to make an unconstitutional argument that they claim is, is constitutional. And if you want to make an unconstitutional argument, that is okay. Make that argument, but do not adopt the constitution into your argument just as a way to both mask and progress your agenda. The intent of the founding fathers in their writings within the Second Amendment is clear. If you do not support that and the rights defined within the Second Amendment, you're progressing an unconstitutional claim. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that you're speaking contrary to the Constitution. Because I want to make it clear whose side the Constitution stands on in regards to this debate. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because one of the most critical aspects of our Constitution is that you can't just pick and choose which amendments you want to be implemented in society, especially when dealing with the Bill of Rights. For example, far too often do we have people actively calling for the disbandment of the Second Amendment while simultaneously using another amendment to defend themselves. Abortion is a perfect example of individuals actively defending what they believe to be a right enshrined in the 14th Amendment. But what's ironic about these individuals is when it comes to things like the Second Amendment, they automatically abandon the Constitution. The main point that I'm getting to here is that you can either support or defend all the rights within this Constitution equally and to the full effect, or you can fully deny the Constitution, including all of the rights within it. What you cannot do is pick and choose which constitutional amendments you want to defend. Okay, so we're going to start with the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986. Now, this piece of legislation essentially banned the ownership of weapons um, that are fully automatic among citizens, which, if you don't know what fully automatic means, essentially semi-automatic is when you have, uh, every time you pull the trigger, a bullet exits the chamber and is also one shot. So one trigger, one pull. Uh, one shot, but fully automatic, on the other hand, means that when you pull the trigger, continuous shots are made until you release the trigger. Now, what's important about this legislation is that it brings up the question, how come certain guns that have fully automatic capabilities are banned? Perhaps this blows a hole straight through our earlier argument about being able to own whatever weapon you want to defend yourself in equal power against the threat. However, the difference between a fully automatic versus semi-automatic weapon is that there is no necessary scenario in which a fully automatic needs to be used in self-defense. And I know that a lot of people will say that when they're trying to, say, get rid of guns like AR-15s, and they'll say, oh, well, there's no uh, common scenario in which this could be the case. I'm only saying that for this specific case because while fully automatic sounds effective, it's extremely difficult to control, in turn making it extremely difficult to be accurate. Even in the military, because the military does have capability to use fully automatic weapons, this capacity of shooting is pretty much only used when giving suppressive fire. In other words, you just want to make the enemy duck. You're not actually going to aim and hit them. So again, there is no instance in which a fully automatic weapon is going to be necessary in defense, which is why we can agree that this form of legislation is acceptable, because there is no defensive application. And I wanted to tell you about this point. Because as we go through the modern gun uses, a lot of my points here are going to be based on whether or not they are defensively applicable. Now, 
not about whether they are constitutional or not, but about whether they are useful in self-defense scenarios. Because I want to separate the constitution argument from the modern application argument. Now, I believe that the two are intrinsically connected, but I'm trying to make the point here that even if you discard the constitution, the benefits of having guns or having guns available for law-abiding citizens, statistically speaking, is much safer than their absence. Okay, so the first thing that I think needs to be addressed are the different levels people advocate for gun restriction. Now, obviously, you have your first basic belief that says every citizen should be able to own a gun regardless if it's an AR-15 or even just a pistol. That is a protected right, and it should not be infringed to any degree. That is most commonly the first argument. It's also most commonly referred to as the pro-gun argument. Now, the second commonly heard belief is that we should allow citizens to have guns. However, some guns should not be available to the public, such as um, the AR-15 or AK-47, since you a lot of times hear bans referring to those weapons. Um, but in other words, this is a sort of mixed argument of allowing some guns, but not all. And then lastly, we have the um, argument that straight out calls for the removal of all guns, pistols, assault rifles, etc. Bottom line, no citizen should have access to a gun. So here's the thing. I disagree with the last two arguments, or this, the last two points, essentially. I will detail why later. However, between those last two points, according to their logic, I actually agree more with banning all guns than only banning assault rifles, which I really hate that term, assault rifle. I'll get to why in a second. Um, but I really hate these, these uh, last two points, and more specifically, the point that only bans certain weapons more than all weapons. Um, for two big reasons. And the first is by applying the logic of eliminating the quote unquote more dangerous weapon, pistols, statistically speaking, are far, far more dangerous than any other rifles, including the AR-15. Now, the second reason is because the process of determining what constitutes a quote unquote assault rifle is subjective and ultimately impossible. And let me start with the second reason. Now, in 1994, Bill Clinton signed off on new gun restriction legislation that banned certain types of weapons. Historically speaking, this legislation was a failure on many fronts, mainly because it was extremely ineffective. Um, and the question is, why was this legislation so ineffective after all the research that had been done in order to determine which guns were dangerous and should thus be banned? Um, and in theory, by banning the most dangerous guns, weapon violence should have gone down too, right? But that was not the case. There are many different issues with this legislation, but one of the biggest issues was that the process of determining which guns should be banned was extremely subjectively flawed, since they really didn't have any strong defining metric to judge by which guns should be removed. This is what ABC News had to say about it. The bill banned more than a dozen specific firearms and certain features on guns, but because there are so many modifications that can be made on weapons, and the fact that it did not outright ban all semi-automatic weapons, many such guns continued to be legally used. And there it is, really. That's the bottom line, banning all semi-automatic weapons. Because realistically, the only metric they have to use uh, in order to determine whether it's, whether it's dangerous or not is if it's a rifle. Since rifles, generally speaking, tend to have higher semi-automatic calibers than, say, pistols. In other words... Banning all rifles is the only possible solution to banning which guns um, that are deemed more dangerous than others. It's really the only metric that they can use. But of course, 
their response to that is, wait, hold on. We don't want to ban all rifles. We just want to ban assault rifles. So first of all, there is no such thing as an assault rifle. It does not exist. The reality of what constitutes an assault rifle is determined by the press and whether or not they want to portray a specific gun in a negative scenario, which is why when the press calls weapons assault rifles and the people who watch that press start calling it assault rifles, now we have a fluid, undefinable term attached to whatever weapon of the day the press prefers to target. AR-15, by the way, does not stand for assault rifle. It stands for Armalite, which is the name of the weapons manufacturer. So there's no way to determine what an assault rifle is. And that's really the issue with the 1994 legislation, as they have no way to effectively ban certain weapons, which is why it failed in part. Now, the question you might be thinking of is, well, if assault rifles are given are the name uh, given to weapons the media portrays commonly, say in gun violence or mass shootings, then maybe there's something behind the fact that these weapons tend to be involved disproportionately in, say, homicide, mass shootings, or just general gun violence, because we hear about them more, right? And that brings me to my first point, which is the idea that AR-15s or AK-47s um, or other rifles are more dangerous than pistols. That is not statistically true. So before I give you the statistics, I just want to make one thing clear. I just told you a second ago that the media is essentially bad at its job, and I didn't really explain why. I want you, as I go through some of these facts, to think about these two questions. Now, the first, by taking the approach or adopting the argument that the quote-unquote most dangerous weapons should be banned, based on what I'm going to tell you, do you think rifles or pistols should be banned? Again, I'm not saying you have to agree either should be banned. I'm just saying by applying that logic, which do you think should be banned? That's the first question right there. Which weapons should be banned, aka which weapons are most dangerous? Now, the second question, and I'm not going to explain why the media is bad at its job yet because I want you to figure out if it's bad at its job. The question is, within the media, do you tend to hear more about pistol-related gun violence or AR-15 slash assault rifle violence? Within the media, which do you tend to hear more about? And follow-up, does the level at which they report on one uh, disproportionately line up with how much they report on the other? And again, you're going to compare that to the actual statistics, which I will give you in a second. So those are the two main questions, media coverage and most dangerous weapons. Okay, so according to the U.S. Department of Justice's FBI crime tables, which, by the way, you can look them up. They're available online um, for different years. But handguns, are the most common weapon type used in mass shootings in the United States, with a total of 146 different handguns being used in 98 incidents between 1982 and June 2022. These figures are calculated from a total of 129 reported cases over this period, meaning handguns are involved in about 76% of mass shootings. 76%. Does that match the deadly assault rifle scenario? Do you think you hear about the uh, about these cases comparatively with these statistics? Do you think that 76% of the time you're hearing about pistol mass shootings? Or does it seem like most of the time you're hearing about assault rifle mass shootings? Because again, these statistics are clear. 76% of mass shootings are driven by handguns. Now, according to the 2019 FBI uh, homicide data, handguns accounted for 6,000 368 deaths while rifles not just limited to the AR-15 style weapons but all rifles um, excluding shotguns only accounted for 364 deaths 
notably knives, knives and other cutting instruments, accounted for 1,476 deaths, meaning that for every rifle-related homicide, there are approximately four people killed by knives or other cutting weapons. According to this same data, blunt objects, as in clubs or hammers, etc., make up for about 397 deaths. Furthermore, personal weapons, meaning hands, fists, feet, uh, etc., make up 600 deaths, making you more likely to die by either blunt objects or personal weapons than rifles. In total, pertaining to the year 2019, rifles accounted for approximately 2.6% of all homicides. This number continues to decrease as you single out guns, such as the AR-15. And this is widely available data that you can view on FBI crime statistics, which, again, you can look them up for, for every year. If you do not believe me, I urge you to go and do your own research and then compare that to what the media tells you. So you can start to see, given this data, I think the argument specifically to ban rifles and not handguns is the most wild of all the arguments. Again, if you're going to take the approach of weapon violence minimization, you're going to look at the data to determine which guns are most dangerous and ban those ones. And according to the data, pistols are way deadlier, way deadlier. Knives are way deadlier. Fists and blunt objects are way deadlier. And this brings up a couple of questions. First off, why are pistols taking more lives and being used more often in mass shootings? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The reality is it's way easier to conceal pistols and smaller firearms than it is to conceal a rifle. Uh, and this is probably one of the most plausible reasons why pistols tend to be used more often in mass shootings. Now, in regards to AR-15s and other rifles, homeowners tend to keep their rifles at home and carry their pistols with them. Again, why pistols are more um, available than rifles is one possible reason. Kind of what I was just saying, another possible reason is a lot of times people will keep their rifles at home versus taking their rifles out or their pistols out with them. So if there is an incident, they're more likely to obviously use that pistol because that's what they have on them. Um, which is why often when there are defense shootings or just shootings in general public, it's most commonly going to be with pistols. That makes sense. So those are some possible reasons why we tend to use pistols uh, far more in general violence and mass shootings. But regardless, we just hit two of the biggest myths in the gun argument. Number one, pistols are used in mass shootings more than rifles. And when someone tells you that AR-15s are the prime mass shooting weapon, or if it seems like the media is constantly reporting on these rifle-related shootings, you know the data. Pistols are the number one mass shooter weapon of choice. Now, myth number two, rifles are deadlier. Again, According to data, pistol deaths outmatch rifle deaths in about a 17 to 1 ratio. So with those two facts in mind, I think it's safe to assume the idea of only banning rifles is ludicrous. It will accomplish nothing. And that's even assuming that a ban would even work in the first place. And that's also assuming that people would be able to uh, sort of sort out which weapons should be banned. Because again, I'm just saying rifles right now doesn't make sense. But I'm also talking about people who just want to straight up say assault rifles. How are you going to go through and decide which rifles of those are going to be assault rifles? And then how are you going to effectively uh, enact that ban? And especially how are you going to get actual legislative policy that is effective? Because once again, Bill Clinton's policy failed in large part because of this sort of vague assault rifle description. And it all comes down to the fact that if you think guns um, in self-defense are the solution, you're going to keep rifles, obviously. And if, if you think that guns are the problem, you're going to go for pistols first, logically, because again, you can start to see why the 
the uh, only ban on rifles or high caliber rifles argument really is just not statistically based, but more kind of socially and media based. So we've talked about the argument for banning only rifles. Now we're going to talk about the argument to ban all weapons, a more general discussion. And I've also been, at least within this last argument, casting guns in a negative shadow as only having bad effects sort of to prove the last point's logic. But we're going to be getting into some of the cases in which guns do actually protect lives and the lack of attention that those scenarios get mainly because, once again, the media is at fault. And remember, that's because as we go through this, um, this whole gun rights discussion, I want you to be thinking where the media stands on a lot of these issues. But first, I want to address one specific argument. And often this argument gets brought up in a gun restrictive debate and um, that's, that's going after gun manufacturers, which really is an attempt by gun control groups to effectively target and remove guns from the market, similar to their legal counterpart attempts to remove them using laws. Now, in the case of, quote, holding gun manufacturers accountable, I really can't phrase this any better, but this is just a lazy attempt. There's good arguments, bad arguments, and then there's really bad, bad arguments. This one is the latter. Not only is it impractical to implement this into the market, but also Let's just think about this for a second. If you drove a car and then decided to drive straight into some kids playing in the street, assuming nothing wrong occurred within the car uh, or within the car malfunctioning, who would you hold responsible? Obviously you, because you were driving the car, not the car company. If you stabbed someone, who would be held accountable, the knife or you? Only in the cases of guns will they try to make the argument that gun manufacturers should be held accountable. And this really does come down to another fundamental question. What is the primary purpose of a gun? And some people will tell you that it's to kill people. Others will tell you it's to defend people. It's simple. Product manufacturers may be held accountable when their products are faulty, leading to hazardous effects or unintended consequences. Guns are made with the intent of self-defense. A gun is a tool similar to many other tools. It can be used for good or for bad, for its purpose or not for its purpose. I find it hard to believe that when someone commits a mass shooting, that was the desired result of the gun manufacturing company. You cannot blame the purpose on your failure to fulfill the purpose. Sound familiar? And if you fail to use guns properly and end up getting someone hurt for the wrong reasons, that you should be held accountable, not the gun manufacturers. So again, it's a last ditch attempt to circumvent gun laws by simply going after gun manufacturers because they want to limit your availability or ability to simply own a gun by targeting the source. Now, one of the first and most emotional points that gets tied into gun usage is mass shootings or mass killings. So as we dive into this category, the very first thing I want you to understand is what a mass shooting actually is. Now, according to the DOJ's website, for the purposes of tracking crime data, the FBI defines a mass shooting as any incident in which at least four people or more are murdered with a gun. This is the metric we will be using for the definition of a mass shooting, four or more as designated by the FBI. And I want to make that clear because far too often these days, we have media going around designating just about every form of shooting that involves more than one victim as a mass shooting, which in turn makes people think mass shootings are more common when in reality, we're just using the word more commonly. So we have to be careful to stick to the definition. Otherwise we change the metric and everything jumps out of proportion. Okay, so fact number one, according to the Crime Prevention Research Center, between the years 1950 to, 19, or to 2019, an upward of 94% of mass shootings have occurred in gun-free zones. 
This is the single most important piece of data in regards to guns and gun-free zones. Let me read that again. 94% of mass shootings have occurred in gun-free zones. That should be enough alone. Now, if you think about this logically, where do you think a criminal is going to want to go? The place where guns are allowed and people are actively carrying or the place where zero guns are and people have to count on the police who are an after-the-fact solution to protect them. Naturally, criminals are going to go where there is the least resistance, which is why gun-free zones are some of the most dangerous zones in the United States, ironically. California, which ranks first for most gun laws, about 111 active laws as of 2020, also ranks first for the most mass shootings, almost double that of any other state. It's simple human nature. Those who seek to violate others' rights will often go to those who are weakest first. In the cases um, of gun violence, the general disarming of citizens often leads to greater amounts of gun violence because criminals feel empowered. And if you don't believe me, here's another statistic. Um, this was a 1985 Justice Department survey of incarcerated felons, uh, which reported that 57% of felons polled agreed that criminals are more worried about meeting an armed victim than they are about running into the police. 39% of the felons had personally decided not to commit a crime because they thought the victim might have a gun, and 8% said that this has happened many times. The data shows that criminals in these states, uh, in states with higher civilian gun ownership rates, worried the most about armed victims. And just something that I want to add real quick on the topic of state gun violence is a lot of times what happens is pro Gun advocates will often bring up examples like Detroit and Baltimore, etc., as places with gun laws, and yet they have such high gun violence. And sometimes the gun restrictive advocates will try to make the case that, oh, actually, if you want to talk about places with the worst gun violence, look to Alaska and Alabama, which actually ranks highest. This is an extremely misleading point, though. The issue with these statistics is that it's not really about gun violence, but gun violence per capita. Or in other words, it's a gun violence statistic that fails to account for comparative populations. Just to give you some perspective on why it's misleading to try and prop up these other states as being more gun violent, Alaska, during the year of 2020, suffered from about 175 gun deaths versus California, which suffered from 3,449 gun deaths. Notably, that's almost 20 times as many deaths as Alaska. And yet, guess what Alaska's death rate is? 23.5 versus California, significantly smaller, 8.5. So again, it's very misleading um, to try and make that argument, especially when you consider that, again, Alaska has a much lower death rate than California. And you can go and view those statistics on the CDC's website on firearm mortality. Now, going back to the main point, the fundamental question, does reducing gun ownership actually reduce gun violence? And here's the thing. Sometimes people will try to bring up the argument saying, well, Gun laws may not totally reduce gun violence, but they certainly help decrease it. Now, when you think about that claim naturally, you're first going to think, well, I can agree that anything that tries to reduce gun violence, even if it isn't fully effective, doesn't mean it's faulty because ultimately it's a step in the right direction, right? Well, the reality is it's actually quite the opposite. The reason gun-free zones have the highest rates of gun violence is because criminals feel emboldened in those specific areas, knowing there will not be immediate resistance. So, by having gun laws, you're actually increasing the likelihood of gun violence and specifically mass shootings in those areas. So really, it's a step in the wrong direction. And even the attempt to sort of half justify gun laws is still a backwards argument. And to be clear, we need not look only in the U.S. for examples of faulty gun laws. We can also look at other countries for the successes they have had with increased gun ownership. 
Switzerland with a population of 8 million and gun ownership of around 2 million and relatively low gun restrictions in comparison to other countries suffer from extremely low rates of violence, only about 120 homicides within the past decade and zero, zero mass shootings since 2001. And another thing that I just want to add about mass shootings is how they become politicized. Pretty much every time a mass shooting occurs, the left immediately jumps on the right for needing more gun laws and the right jumps on the left saying we need more gun ownership. Now, I'm not saying that having an opinion on that is bad, but can we at least agree that maybe the time to make giant legislative federal laws about fundamental rights isn't right after a mass shooting when emotions are heightened and everyone jumps to their own corner? Like, if you want to talk about gun reform or gun rights, that's fine. We need more of that. But stop using the heat of the moment to feel your sort of emotional absolutist shut down from any opposing point of view. And speaking of emotional issues and mass shootings, the one specific type of mass shooting that seems to get the most coverage among media and talk among society are school mass shootings. Now, just like earlier when we addressed two big myths in the gun debate, here are two more we're going to address. Claim number one, schools are more dangerous now than they were back then. That's the first argument. The second, being more general, is that the United States has some of the highest rates of gun violence in the world. Now, those are two pretty hefty claims. So let's start with the first one while we're on the topic of school mass shootings. We see it again and again, the outrage and coverage that these school mass shootings get. It's gotten so bad to a point where parents and children are fearing daily for safety. It seems like schools have become some of the most dangerous places for kids to be during the day to the point where parents don't want to send them there and kids don't even want to go anymore out of fear of being shot or worse killed. Now, firstly, in no way can you really blame the children or parents for fearing about this as much as they do. Um, when in fact, one of the reasons they fear so much about this is because of media's portrayal of the current education system and security and how often they tend to drive our thoughts regarding these tragedies. So there is currently a big lie going around, mainly starting from the media and then echoed throughout most of society that schools are more dangerous than they used to be. The bottom line is that this is simply not true. The misconception of an increase in school gun violence stems from the fact that multiple victim shootings have increased in recent years. So does that mean that schools are more dangerous? Well, on the surface, it may seem like yes. If there is an increase in multiple victim shooting, schools must be getting more dangerous, except it's not quite that simple. According to the National Institute of Justice, a review of the most widely used and well-known data sources reveals that incidents of multiple victim youth homicides in schools started declining in 1994, but have been increasing since 2009. Thus, the public's perception that there is an increased likelihood of a school mass shooting is grounded in an increase in multiple victim school-associated deaths. Seems to add up. Despite this increase, however, the rates of violent victimization and serious violent victimization at schools are low and have been decreasing since the 1990s, meaning that schools were more dangerous in the 90s than they currently are. Now, this is a very important point to know about school gun violence, starting with the fact that general safety is actually better than it was previously. Now, being safer does not mean that it cannot be improved, and we'll come back to that in a second, but first I want to make the point as clear as possible. School safety has improved, and a lot of people want to continue to pursue the false idea that schools are far more dangerous, and we can certainly have discussions regarding improving safety without our, or within our education system, and I also don't have a problem with people saying that mass shootings likelihoods have slightly increased over more recent years since, again, that is factually supported, but when they tried to make the overarching claim that general gun violence in schools has increased, and that children are more unsafe than ever. They are simply spouting false information. And you have to wonder, why do people keep trying to make these claims? It would not be far off to assume the reason they try to prop this up 
um, as much as they do is because they want to attack guns as much as they can using some of the most important and sacred things within our society, our children. It's easy to use any argument that involves child safety and automatically sound emotionally absolute, but the issue is when we have people fear-mongering over false statistically proven data, this can cause further issues and often leads to attacking the wrong source, in this case, the right to bear arms. They want to make people fear guns using children and pairing it with half-truths. Now, in regards to an increase in mass shootings, this brings us to the fundamental question, are guns the solution or the issue? Now, I'm sure that you already know, but schools are actually gun-free zones, meaning that every school shooter is a lawbreaker. No surprise there, since, as we explained earlier, criminals pursue the routes with the least resistance. But also, this gun-free zone means that there's only one person who lawfully is allowed to carry weapons. And in most cases, um, that's going to just be the police. And sometimes there's maybe one or two cops on all of school campus. But again, most of the times, the only ones who are going to have weapons are going to be law enforcement officers. So here's the thing. If you have ever had a discussion with someone who supports banning weapons, it's important to ask what is the alternative if we don't have guns. And it's important to ask that because it gives them a chance to rationalize their argument. And a lot of times we hear ban guns and we automatically stick to that point. But again, it's important to allow them to explain the follow-up question of what's the alternative. Now, chances are they will most likely tell you that cops should be allowed to have guns and that cops should be responsible for protecting us. So in other words, only law enforcement is responsible for having firearms. Now, remember, we talked about um, after-the-fact solutions. Cops are almost always going to be an after-the-fact solution. If someone pulls a gun on you in the street, are you going to have time to call the police and then have them respond in a timely manner and then have them stop the dangerous situation all within the time that you're held at gunpoint? Probably not. Relying on the cops means relying on more time, relying on other resources and other people and their ability to make the right decision in the moment. And in a lot of cases, it's pretty impractical to rely on the cops to defend within a few seconds someone can attack you. Don't believe me? We don't have to look that far in society to find examples of law enforcement failing to respond in a timely manner. Uvalde is just one of the many examples. And look, I want to be clear. I'm not putting cops down in any way as if they're not doing much at all. It's our fault for expecting this to be a practical long-term solution. It's simple. The best line of defense is the first line of defense. And maybe we can apply this in our schools, such as having teachers trained and armed in cases of emergencies. But one thing is certain, relying on police and laws, making it illegal to bring weapons to school grounds is not an effective solution. Now, the second argument that we talked about claims that the United States suffers from some of the highest rates of gun violence in the world. Now, we really need to break this claim down. According to World Population Review, during the year of 2019, America ranked second in total gun deaths just behind Brazil. And you can look that up on most data websites. It's a pretty universal fact that America ranks um, as high as it does in total gun deaths. And a lot of people will sort of take that fact and run without actually putting it under a light to break it down. Claiming things like America statistically has higher rates of gun violence than most other countries or America's lack of gun restrictions lead to such high numbers of gun deaths. It simply comes down to this. There's a difference between gun violence meaning things like homicide or murder, versus gun deaths, which is just every form of death via a gun. Now, the two are not to be mixed. And the reason is suicide is one of the greatest contributors to America's high ranking in gun deaths. According to Cato Institute, there were roughly 3,800, excuse me, 38,000 gun deaths in 2016. Two-thirds of them were suicides. Now, if we properly address it, as America... Um, 
address it as it is, America ranks 31 in general gun violence, which is less than four deaths per every 100,000 people. Suicide is one of the greatest contributors to America's high ranking in gun deaths. According to Cato Institute, there were roughly 38,000 gun deaths in 2016. Two-thirds of them were suicide. Now, if we properly address it as it is, America ranks about 31st in general gun violence, which is less than four deaths per every 100,000 people. Now, in response to the claim that America's gun violence is worse than a lot of other third world countries like South Africa um, and Thailand, which notably have extremely strict gun laws and have even banned private ownership, suffer much higher rates of gun violence than the United States. So not only do we sort of see the claim that America's gun violence is the worst is false, but we also see how it's equally false to try and act like other third world countries are much better than the U.S. And Notably, countries with strict gun laws suffer from higher gun crime. It's almost like the same story with gun-free zones in the United States. So we can see how claims like schools are more dangerous because of guns and the U.S. has the worst gun violence can often be weaponized because they're based on partial truths. And then they get twisted out of proportion to propel, to propel pro-gun restriction arguments. And a lot of times, the arguments are often formulated by the press and then pushed out into society for further echo. I don't think people realize how much the press actually influences what we think because we're certainly capable of thinking what we want about the workings of the world. But the reality is the press is our eyes. In most cases, they are the defining line of what gets shown and talked about within America's society. And this leaves us with the very last portion I want to talk about. And ironically, this one best represents failure of the press to accurately fully portray news stories. So in the beginning, I talked about the constitutional aspect of this whole debate and the rights regarding it. The reason I separated it was because I wanted to fight the fight on both fronts, the constitutionality of gun rights and the practicality of gun rights. We are now going to address the heart of the practicality of it. It's that fundamental question, do guns save lives more than they take? Now, assuming the Constitution didn't exist, how would you determine if guns should be legal or restricted? The chances are you're probably going to look at whether or not they have a net positive or net negative effect on society. If it's positive, we would obviously want to keep guns since they're actively helping and protecting society. And if it was negative, we would want to restrict guns since clearly they're mainly hurting the country. And before I move on, I'm really going to try and incorporate your ability to perceive what the media is overwhelmingly telling you as we go through these facts. And so right now, I urge you to just look up, do guns save more lives um, or do they take more lives? And see, see what comes up, see what some of the results are. I'm willing to bet that the overwhelming consensus is that guns take more lives and have a net negative impact on society. The sad reality to this question is that defensive gun uses are extremely, extremely underreported. This begs the question, why are defensive gun uses so underreported? Well, there could be a variety of reasons. So for starters, um, other forms of defensive gun usage exist, such as warning shots and gun uses that result in non-life-threatening injuries. Media also fails to account for instances in which simply the knowledge of gun ownership within a certain area leads to a decrease in criminal activity, um, which also leads to greater prevention of death and general crime than originally reported. Uh, then there's also brandishing, which according to Crime Research Institute, 95% of defensive gun uses involve merely brandishing a weapon, and that's less than 1% involve the attacker being killed or wounded. So. There's a variety of ways guns can be used that don't involve the attacker being killed and thus have a greater likelihood for underreporting. Cases in which homicides occur leading to a, the death of a person are much more likely to get reported to media and other data sources than with instances that ended peacefully because of the presence of a defensive gun use. 
Not to mention, there's also a variety of media selection in which of the stories that do get reported to media, it's up to them to then determine which ones they choose to run. And unfortunately, media tends to prefer the stories that get the most views, which in most cases are gun homicides versus gun self-defense. But again, the media often tends to underreport cases of self-defense. And this is why we often see so many arguments pushing the context that guns kill more than they protect. However, when we actually begin to take into account gun usage, gun usages that typically go underreported, the ratio then begins to reverse. Now, according to the CDC, almost all national survey estimates indicate that defensive gun uses by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminals, with estimates of annual uses ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million in the context of about 300,000 violent crimes involving firearms during the year 2008. And Again, that's even compensating for known data, which is homicides, versus a lowball estimate of gun defensive uses. Now, of those 17 surveys by the CDC on gun defensive usage, the U.S. Department of Justice's National Crime Victimization Survey indicates that around 100,000 defensive gun uses occur each year. Notably, the DOJ survey stands as one of the lowest estimates of gun defensive uses compared to the other 16 surveys within the CDC study. However, the DOJ's estimate being on the lowest end still vastly refutes the media's underreporting scenario. So once again, we have a similar scenario of the media taking one thing that is known and kind of twisting it by failing to account for the full context of the situation. And if you don't believe me, we can look at more data to see how badly the media portrays guns. Now, according to this CDC survey data, that means that on average, 2 million gun uses are used defensively per year, with about only 2,000 being reported to the media. So um, our society's perception of gun violence versus gun defense is based largely on what the media shows and how much of it they choose to show. And that's why I'm hammering this media so much again and again. It's because they inspire so much of what we think. And the reality is there are millions of ways to misrepresent data by not fully representing it. Not only does the media have the capability to misrepresent information, they can inspire us to believe different narratives, whether it means AR-15s are the most dangerous weapons or guns have made schools more dangerous, or that guns kill more people than they defend. One thing is clear, the media holds the power, and unless we are willing to actually look at the data and not fall into the traps of allowing them to twist or blow things out of proportion, only then will we begin to clearly see the effects guns are really having on our society, and equally, what effect their absences are having. So as we come to an end in this episode, I really want to challenge you to do one thing. Examine the media. When it comes to guns in our society, there are practically ap applicable reasons and constitutional reasons. I've presented these arguments to you in a manner that separates the two as to effectively provide reasons for all of the scenarios. But the reality is the Constitution exists to instill practical application in society as they protect fundamental rights. And as I said earlier, the Second Amendment isn't really about guns. It's about self-defense. And a lot of people will try to claim that the Constitution is outdated, needs to be modified so to fit our current society's standards. In other words, they claim it's not a living constitution, right? Well, first of all, there exists a process for adding amendments in which if current day, modern day society deems a new amendment as necessary, it can go through the legal processes of becoming law. But even then, one has to ask what distinguishes the Bill of Rights from all the other amendments? Clearly, if the founding fathers wanted to, they could have easily sat down and decided on hundreds of amendments they thought were necessary for the for the Bill of Rights. In fact, when the Constitution was originally ratified, two of the 12 proposed amendments never made it into the Bill of Rights. One thing is clear, because the Founding Fathers were so specific 
especially in the quantity of amendments used within the Bill of Rights, along with the fact that they created a constitution that could allow for amendments to be made but would still have those first 10, they felt that those basic 10 rights were most crucial to our freedom. They figured that regardless of whatever amendments we choose to later add, the Constitution must still include the Bill of Rights, our fundamental rights. And yet, here we are debating about whether or not to disregard them. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like it, be sure to check out our next one where we discuss wealth inequality, capitalism versus socialism, and your economic freedom. This has been the Fight for Your Rights podcast. 